can remember the room. I can remember what he's wearing. I can remember everything. And I will always remember everything. You are listening to The Breakup Evolution, a collection of real-life vignettes of how people grow from heartbreak. The other day, I was having one of those mindless internet scrolling days. It's late at night, which, which is like midnight for me, so kind of late. And I end up on this page, and I'm not even sure how, but I end up reading about Jordan Powers. And it's all about his story of finding his father on a gay dating site. Which, oh my god, for that reason alone, I really wanted to talk to him. As I read more, I found out he had written a whole book about his life and the past relationships that he's had. One in particular is with a man named Eli. After that, I messaged him directly and asked him if he'd come on the show to share his story. We cover a lot of things, from what it's like to date someone who's in the closet, to how our relationship decisions can be heavily informed and sometimes burdened by our parents' choices. at a party I was uh, I went went as someone else's date um and I was sitting on the couch and I was telling I told some you know knowing me non-pc joke about something and um I remember just sort of hearing a voice to my right and I turned and I felt like my eyes locked with this person I felt this blood going through my jaw and down my neck and in my chest and it almost felt like every it, it, time just stopped, you know, in those old films when they click and they're sort of in that, uh, you know, you see them and I don't know what they're actually called, but basically it's like a projector and they're clicking and it was just like a slideshow and every moment was a click and it feels like your eyes are, are, are kind of locked together in this mechanism and you're looking at the person and you feel like you don't even have to say anything. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, it's that thing I'm, I'm I'm, it's love. This hasn't happened to me for a decade. And I only was in love one other time. And I sort of just realized, oh my God, I'm in love. And it was sort of this crazy romantic story. We would, uh, you know, we would text all day. We would, um, we would just stare at each other. We would just stare into each other's eyes and have that oxytocin rush and dilated pupils. And he was closeted in his late thirties. He had told me that. And I sort of just ignored that. And I sort of thought, well, he'll come out for me. Um, I'm worth it. And this is true love. And I started thinking about our future. I started thinking about um, everything. I was I was so desperate for love at the time. I was ready to expedite the whole process. So I ignored so many flags. But, you know, he did. The one thing that bonded us was comedy. I mean, that's how I live my life. It's how I survived all kinds of trauma. It's it's what I cleave to at the darkest moments. And he had a dark cynicism, which is what I have. Um, and so that bonded us. Um, and I just ignored everything. And then it was like getting on a roller coaster and it just took off. I knew he was emotionally unavailable before he even told me that he was closeted. Meaning usually when you're closeted, you, you are frozen in time. You're not emotionally available because you can never really get to the next level with a person because A, you're not honest with yourself, but B, 
you can't live honestly and openly. And I wonder if I just subconsciously signal wise or something, I picked up on that. And that's, you know, very much my father. That was uh, my father was an absent man that abandoned our family. And sometimes I wonder, you know, and in retrospect, looking at all the relationships in my 20s that were disaster, how much of that was just what we call daddy issues um, or what was familiar to me was chaos and abandonment and stuff like that. But it was also mixed in with this weird love bombing, excessive compliments. And we never really talked that much about him. We talked about me and I'm a comedian and I'm self-absorbed. So it's a perfect recipe. <laughs> and um, how did you know that he was closeted? We were at dinner. Uh, it was like our first date. And yeah, I remember he told us at me at dinner, we were, we were sitting there and he just sort of mentioned that he wasn't out um, to his family or even at work. Um, and I sort of thought, wow, you're in your late 30s. It's I, I think I called it pathetic at the time. I said, isn't it kind of pathetic at this point? I said, you know, you're in a major city. Um, I don't understand what's happening. And then he sort of just changed the sub subject. But I was already I was already hooked. I was already high, you know. You hear of like addicts and stuff like that that are already knee deep in the addiction and nothing really it's impenetrable in that sense. Yeah, it's interesting that he actually brought it up or maybe is it interesting that he brought it up right at the beginning rather than kind of leading you on and going into this relationship and then bringing it up later? I think I brought it up because I think that I had a problem where I was previously dating. In retrospect, there was like also two other closeted guys before him. So I think part of me was trying to grow as a human being and not repeat the same mistakes. And so in that sense, I was doing some sort of pseudo screening process. Uh, and that's that is why I think I, I asked him. Um, but, you know, he could have given me any any answer and I would have just ignored it. Can you... Can you talk through how the relationship unfurled from there since you're meeting at the party and then and then I guess staying through it? Yeah, so it was um, truly it was like someone turned my world upside down. What I thought was, you know, it was classic gaslighting, you know, it would be like someone if you thought the sky was blue and someone could somehow convince you it was green and they weren't going to let go until they convinced you it was green. And that extended from everything from him disappearing for several days at a time, then coming back saying happy two month anniversary, buying me a gift. Um, it was completely and utterly confusing. He would disappear out of my life. Um, he would come back. I had a birthday party. He was due to meet all my friends. He didn't show up that night. Um, I vowed to never talk to him again. And then I reached out to him two, two months later and just sort of said, I just need to know what happened. I don't understand. All I really wanted to do was love you and you're putting me through all this and blah, blah, blah. Then he would come back. We would do the whole dance. Um, he would come up with some story saying, I got to change. I got to go to therapy. Um, he'd cry. We'd sit on the couch and I, I'd say, okay. And I, and I just, I had almost too much empathy in a way. One time he threw me against the fridge and what's unique to being a gay man is when it's two people play fighting, you sort of think, oh, it's just two guys. They're just wrestling. There's no abuse going on there. And among the emotional abuse that I was going through, there was a moment where there was physical abuse and I did have scars or I had a bruise on my back and 
in retrospect of writing this book, I thought, damn, that's something that I just at the time didn't think happened. Several years after that, I wanted to see how much I'd grown as a person. So I just asked him for lunch and I, I was just floating above my body, just looking at who I used to be and so proud of how far I'd come and realizing that if I saw that exact same person now, I would have run the other way. Mm. What do you think it was? I mean, seeing him at lunch versus, you know, the countless times of giving him another chance. What changed? Um, I went to therapy and I just had a therapist who sat me down. You know, I'd been to many therapists before. I'd had bad experiences. I had mediocre experiences. And this was a therapist that just was really no nonsense, just personal responsibility, own everything. Um, you're responsible for your own life. Um, and I just sat down and she just read me and she, in short, told me you're a person that's desperate for love. You're a person who didn't get it in your childhood and you're a person that you will do anything for it. And I replaced that person with a person that loved himself, with a person that truly found his calling in comedy and writing and had this fan base and found a passion and a thing to do every day that built my confidence up to a level that I realized what I deserved out of life. So it was a combination of the ascendancy uh, of notoriety in this business, but also at the same time, breaking down my ego and owning every single mistake I made in my life. And this therapist was super no nonsense was like this is what's up how did that compare to I assume you were telling your friends about Eli how did that compare to what your loved ones were saying um the problem with it with telling someone like me uh what they're seeing is I I um very stubborn very independent person and so um I think in many circuitous ways it was communicated to me but um I sort of ignored it. And I think when you're knee deep in any sort of that addiction, external forces aren't going to penetrate. Eli was the last chapter of the book. And I'm curious, um, was that a deliberate choice? Definitely, because um, it's chronologically based. So it's a decade of my life. The book starts at 23 with a breakup with my former boyfriend. And then uh, I lose my mind and I go to the mental hospital for a day. And uh, then I go to sort of leave him and I say to him, like, you know, I'm going to go grow up. And I think very much the book is 10 years of trying to find love, including with myself, um, but having none of the tools to do that. And uh, and then the book sort of ends with the last chapter of Eli is, is current day, which which is 33 years old. And sort of you see as the book goes on naturally, just me growing as a person, being more self-reflective. Um, and you that's how I kind of end the book is, you know, on a happier note. But um, it's definitely one of those books that like if you read the reviews on Amazon or what I hear from people is they said it's the first book that ever made me laugh out loud many times and also cry. Yeah. Is that something that you intended to have that dichotomy of those emotions? I think as comedians, we're always have this insecurity that we're only the only thing that people love us for is that we're funny. And that if that went away, that that no one would really love the person behind it all the person behind the artifice in the show. And so I think for me, it was just sort of 
I wanted to prove myself as a writer and that I couldn't, you know, I can write thousands of jokes I already have and they're in the book, but um, I wanted to prove people that I also had another side to me, but that also I had another talent and that I think very much closing that book was just like, hey, this is the most serious chapter of the book. There's barely any jokes in it. It's not funny and it's going to make you cry, but I need to show you that I'm not just a monkey. Do you think that you ever, uh, either of you got to the point where you, you fell in love with each other? Uh, listen, I, I, there are different types of love, I think. I think what was so confusing about all this is that it felt so real. We were in lockstep. We had the same view of the world. We laughed at the same things. We physically, intimacy, it was perfect. It was so confusing because it was like someone gave you a nightmare but they dressed it up like a fairy tale and when you're presented with that it's very difficult to to be in this sort of dr jekyll mr hyde situation and the part of you that cares for the person always wants to think they're the good person um but in terms of the kind of love i had in my first relationship um, no, that was a more pure, unconditional, um, real, deeply intimate love. Um, whereas this, I think, was an unhealthy infatuation. There was one thing that I wanted to touch on. I think it's something that would resonate with people and is, isn't something that necessarily all people go through in relationships. And that's uh, the play fighting that you had with Eli, uh, just mm -hmm. to backtrack a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um you mentioned, you know, there were several times where it was like rough housing, but then it escalated. And I'm wondering, how did that go over in your mind? What were you thinking when all that happened? I was, you know, it's funny because I, 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 I wrote it very casually in the initial draft of the book. And I sent my manuscript to my editor and she, you know, it's a crazy wild book. I mean, I go to an orgy in Hollywood. I sleep with my boss. I get chlamydia. I mean, it's really just all the debauchery of your 20s. And then the book ends with this really solemn chapter. And I had written about that experience and condensed it to essentially about a paragraph. And she had written, <laughs> sent it back the first time and written a bunch of notes just be like, what? Like, you can't just gloss over this. You can't ignore this. This is like such a crazy thing. So many people go through this. And I have lived such a traumatized life between being sexually assaulted when I was younger or having a father disappear or having friends try to kill themselves. I mean, I've just lived through such an insane amount of trauma that these things, unfortunately, don't really resonate with me in certain other ways. But essentially, yeah, we were play fighting and I made a joke about him coming out and I just saw this fire in his eyes, I remember. And it was like I didn't I didn't recognize him for a split second. It's the same look, actually, I saw my dog do the other day before he kind of attacks another dog. <laughs> you know, you kind of look down at them and go like, well, that's not the same face. Something's about to happen. And I remember he just sort of pushed me and threw me against the fridge. And the uh, wind was knocked out of me. And I was visibly like couldn't breathe. And I kind of fell to the ground. And then I got up and I was clutching my abdomen. And I remember he was like really concerned he was like oh my god are you okay and i and in my head i went oh he's made a mistake the european dramatic jordan uh, he'd already gaslit me that i was dramatic at that point so i didn't want to say anything and then he brought his leg back and just kicked me right in the nuts and i fell right to the ground and that's the point where i realized oh this is something 
Um, then he kissed my forehead and said, I love you and left. And the next day, um, he wrote me a text message and it said, Hey, remember when I came to your house last night and beat the shit out of you? And I am such a dark humor cynicist, like cynicism. I, I, this is, I joke about the most horrific things in life. It's just how I cope. And so I proceeded to write back with the photo of Rihanna and I wrote back and said, yeah. And I wrote back and said, like, you know, like you do a meme, like me right now kind of thing. Right. And then we just sort of laughed about it. Um, and then I remember my friends met him and they like really loved him. And they were saying, he's so great. He's perfect for you. And uh, he would just get up in the middle of me talking in a sentence to kiss me. Um, like he just couldn't get enough of me. And I really do think he felt that way about me. Like, I really do. I don't think it was a show, but I just think he deeply hated himself. And then I remember my friend said, isn't he great? And I wanted to show him the bruise on my back that I had discovered from the, in the shower from the day before. And I just said, yeah, he's, he's great. And I never really brought it up to anyone because, you know, I also, I, I knew they would tell me to leave, which I didn't want to hear. But also I thought that they would be like, it's not valid. It's two men play fighting. Like you're of the same physical strength. You just... It just was a mistake. Mm. There's this totally false notion that just because it's two men that that abuse can't happen. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you know what? You think about it now and what, what makes me realize, oh, my God, it was it was that because I was also being emotionally abused at the same time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, is it so much of a stretch? And you know when you throw someone against a fridge, if it was an accident, you don't then kick them in the balls. He wanted to push me away because he felt intimacy and he felt it happening and the reality that he was falling in love with someone and he hated that so much. So I represented that. And that's why he pushed me. You mentioned some of the intoxication in that addiction. How much of that do you think is tied to your relationship with your parents? Oh, very much so. It's just a way of self-soothing, right? Um, And um, not wanting to be left with your emotions um, and not wanting to be left alone because if you confront those things, you'll be a mess. And I needed to be productive, so I just kept pressing everything and everything down. But, you know, I came from um, a father that just completely and utterly abandoned our family Um, and a mother that was great, but, you know, was also the product of a closeted gay man and my father that eroded her self-esteem and didn't love her at the same time. And so she at times was brutal to us because she was not being loved. And these are the cycles of abuse and family dynamics that we often hear about. But um, in my dad's situation, it it really does start with living in a world in which gay men are still not accepted. And so my dad didn't feel he could possibly be an out gay man. And then that trickled down to her. And then, that, then you know, at times she was mean to us. And so I grew up in a chaotic uh, family. And um, I think it needed more love. I know we talked about this before the recording. Um, but could you talk about how you discovered that your dad was going through this pain and and, and was closeted? Yeah. So my dad uh, left the family computer open and um, he was a member on a gay hookup site. And uh, the name is squirt.org, which is a 
great, quite a visual for your audience. And uh, <laughs> he was a member on there and I found his profile and, you know, all these pretty, pretty nasty details about what he was up to. And uh, I told my mom and she did not know he was gay until she started the whole, the old, you know, hindsight thing. And, and then in hindsight, she remembered all these moments. And then when my dad was confronted for it or with it, as my parents were divorcing, uh, his strategy was to deny it completely and um, abandon our family and move to the other side of Canada to start a relationship with a woman and wow. her family. And um, to the day he died, he never would admit it. Um, all the signs were there. We had all the evidence. Um, and so, yeah, that's that was kind of the, you know, I've I've grown up being this gay advocate with my old podcast and my book and creating the gay content I needed as a young gay kid. And and the, the very basis of our old podcast was to eradicate residual gay shame. And you do that by just exposing everything and saying, I don't care. and I'm just going to put it all out there. And very much what is the impetus for a lot of the work that I did in the past of my show, and my book is to become the antithesis of my father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like getting it out there and removing the shame that that unnecessarily is there in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's lived in us in so many ways. How old were you at the time? I was 23. I had just got out of a, uh, ironically, a four and a half year relationship in the closet because I myself was not out. Um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, deeply, deeply, it was, it was a difficult thing. I'm a very resilient person. So a lot of people leaned on me, um, including my mom, and I did my best. But um it's left me, among other things in my life, a deeply traumatized person. And the only silver lining to that is that I'm funny and I've parlayed that into some sort of a comedy career. So when that happened, you were 23. Did you have did you have any hesitancy about telling your mom? Or were you like, oh, crap, I need to tell her now? Well, it was kind of the perfect moment, right? <laughs> it was like, okay, well, I got another secret. Um, and I think she was kind of in some sort of a st stage of shock. So I knew it would lessen the blow. But I never had parents that uh, my parents are pretty open minded. And so I wasn't concerned really about their reaction, but I just sort of like snuck it in at the at the time. Um, and then, yeah, I just I just watched my dad completely take off. And um, and it's I think what no one talks about. And this is one of the things I really want people to understand is that we so often exalt people that come out that were closeted and, and, and rightfully so. But I think we also forget that there are families there and there are, there is carnage left behind. And there is a partner that um, who feels like their life was a lie and whose self-esteem has been eroded over time. And, and those people that we very rarely hear from them. We, we hear from, uh, you know, the people magazine, good for you for coming out, but we rarely hear about what was left um, in these, in the other spouse. Yeah, that's true. And especially like you were, I mean, not just the spouse, it was also you and, and the rest of your family that were also, like you said, were kind of the carnage of, of your dad, not necessarily coming out, but, but, um, you know, you discovering this. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify, was that also the moment that you came out to your, to your mother? Yeah, no, not the exact moment. That would that okay, would have been yeah. a lot of messaging at once. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, she's you don't take so much at once. But it was very close to that like period. I would say 
from the time that I told her about my dad, I would say it was within two to three months. It sounds like it was correlated in some way. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I talk about being the antithesis of my father. I think it sends, you know, when you're a gay person, you really struggle with yourself for, for a really long time. And some people really never get to, you know, the place of no shame about who they are. And I think when your dad is gay and hides it from you, it sends the ultimate message to you that your fears about being, you know, an aberrant or unlovable or a disgusting gay person your whole life, you, you feel like those things might be true um, because your own father couldn't accept them. And so that trickles over into the people that you date. And there was a pattern of the same types of people, emotionally unavailable in different respects, um, but all emotionally unavailable. And the, the most emotionally unavailable person was probably me. It just reminds me of how we see our parents as super, superhumans. No, so like super, yeah, superheroes. Super, yeah. yeah, superheroes. There we go. And you expect them to have figured out everything. So it's it's heartbreaking to see, you know, when we recognize weaknesses or shortcomings like, oh, this is something my dad grappled with and and maybe he never got to to figure out how to overcome it for himself or, or uh, himself. It, it unravels your worldview and um and your belief systems in different ways, you know? And that's a, that's a difficult thing to grapple with, I think, for a lot of people. Your podcast, titled Shame on You, has millions of downloads. Can you tell me a little bit about how that started? And in your own words, you mentioned it's the gay content that we never had access to growing up. I just wanted to be a shameless gay person and a gay man particularly. And I needed to create the content that I didn't have. I mean, when you're a young gay person, I talked about this in my book, but you are a ghost. Not so much now, but when I was younger, you were a ghost. You didn't see yourself represented anywhere. You weren't in magazines. You didn't see yourself on TV. There was no book for you that you could read and read about sex and, uh, you know, adventures. And there wasn't a podcast that we had where people would literally interview their ex-boyfriends and lovers and something real and something tangible. And I realized very much that I wanted to create the gay content that I never had as a gay kid and that I never saw out there. And uh, that's what I did with Shame on You. And that's why I think it was so wildly successful is because we were real. We were completely and utterly uncensored. And we had tough, tough conversations, not just with our guests, but with ourselves. And we grew as people and we went through breakups and we went through my dad dying. And we, we you know, we interviewed people we loved and uh, we interviewed meth addicts. We had a gay priest on and it inspired this this thing that we didn't even plan for was that um, gay men started to be more uncomfortable, more comfortable with themselves. They came out of the closet. We had a priest come out of the closet. Um, we had people leave their wives. We had people leave abusive relationships all because they saw something in us. And I think it was that we were going a mile. So they were willing to take a foot. Yeah. And this actually was, I mean, what you intended to create this community and remove the shame from it and, and create awareness. So how did that feel to have it actually happen, to have it come true? 
Well, it uh, ruined my friendship. So that was the, uh, <laughs> I'm no longer friends with my best friend um, um, for a variety of reasons. I don't think it was just the podcast, but it definitely didn't help. Um, that was kind of the dark side of it. But the positive side was it was that I realized I was a comedian in the process. I had always thought I was a writer. I had always used the podcast as a launching platform for a book. And then I had realized that I was quite good at broadcasting and not really in the beginning, but I, I got a lot more fluid with time. And uh, I realized, oh, my God, I actually might enjoy enjoy this more than my writing, which I'd been writing for 12 years. And um, it was so cool. We sold out comedy shows. And then I just realized probably by the end of it, it's like I'm a comedian. That's why I'm here. This is my purpose on Earth It's to make people laugh. It all makes sense. Can you tell us of the myriad of ways people can find you and laugh and well, it sounds like like uh, one of those plaques on like a cheesy home, <laughs> laugh and learn, but <laughs> where yeah, they yeah. can find you and just hear more from you. Those are always the women with like a secret pill addiction. Chardonnay and then mom's got a couple oxy. Mm-hmm. Those, those tend to be those women. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not on squirt.org. That was where we found my dad, but so I won't be on there or only fans. People think I, I'm going to be on there, but uh, my Instagram and Twitter is at jpowercomedy. Um, if you want to buy my book, you can get it on Amazon. And then last but not least, Jordan's show, Unmentionable, comes out every Friday on all podcast platforms, or also you can watch it on YouTube, which is what I've been doing throughout the pandemic. If you have a story to tell about your breakup and how you grew from it, you can reach me on Instagram at thebreakupevolution or email me at thebreakupevolution at gmail.com.